Hello, and welcome to episode 165 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Jarrett Benford. This week, host Robert Randolph talks with Jordan Miller about ClojureScript, aerial art, creatives and closure, and community building. But before we jump into the episode, I'd like to remind everyone that we are hiring. Check out Cognitech.com slash careers.html or reach out to us at jobs at Cognitech.com. And now, Jordan and Robert. Uh, let's start the actual podcast, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Today, tech. I'm here with Jordan Miller. Why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you? What you do? What do you like to do? Work down the list. Oh, you know, it's funny. Every time I do something like this, you would think that I would have like thought through my spiel, my answer to these questions, and I never, ever do. Hi, I'm Jordan. I am also known as Lambda. You have to say it like that. And I do closure, closure script, actually. And I talk about it a lot. I am a meme maker, a YouTube video creator, a conference speaker, a tweet shit poster. I guess that's kind of lumped in with the memes a little bit. I am a cat mom. I'll end it there. I think that's... <laughs> what, what, what kind of cats do you have? Well, my resident is pretty lady and she, I guess the, the SPCA says she's a domestic short hair, but she is mixed with Russian blue. I just, I love Russian blue cats. My ex-girlfriend was really into cats and this is before I was into cats because I'm kind of a recent, recently converted to the life. And we would go to cat shows, which are really cool, actually. <laughs> Like what drew you into the cat shows? Like I, I am not a cat person, so maybe I'm still yet to be converted. Like, what about the cat shows? Where it made you think, like, oh yeah, this is this is this is the thing for me now. Well, okay, she, like I said, she, cats were really like her thing, and I even still have a little bit of like guilt that I like found the cat way because I used to be like deathly allergic, so I just mm -hmm. avoided it. But Purina actually has a food now called Live Clear that makes cats produce less feldy one, which is the protein that humans are allergic to. And there are certain breeds and certain things you can do, like females produce less feldy one. Russian blues, because they don't shed a lot, they and they also produce less feldy one. So we would mostly go to the cat shows because she wanted it. We didn't have any cats and she just loved cats. And I was, you know, along for the ride. And they're just so mellow and cool. You think of dog shows and they're all, it's like high energy running around doing tricks. No, this is just a bunch of cat ladies. Like, look at all my cats. This one's pretty cool. He doesn't growl at you. Hey. And they like, they have this like little area where they have to do almost like a fitness course. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And it's funny because like none of them actually finish it. <laughs> like that's like if they finish it, they like probably win. I don't know how this works, but but anyway, when we went to the cat shows. I knew I liked Russian blues. I know they were hypoallergenic. So when COVID happened, I was living in a condo that was no dogs, and I was living alone. And I decided to just try out the cat thing, and I just fell in love because she's great. So she's my resident, and then I also foster. I also foster for SPCA. That's pretty awesome. It's always interesting to find out what kind of uh, animal companions people have, what they prefer. How did you get started with software development in general? So I have a pretty atypical background. I am the term self-taught. I kind of have some grievances with because it, it kind of implies that I did it all myself, which 
is not true in the slightest. You know, I had lots of help and guidance and and things. But how it started is that I, at the time, I guess I was mid twenties, looking for a career. I was uh, bartending in a microbrewery, and I started dating somebody who was a software developer and had agreed to do the website for this microbrewery and was going to build this like custom bespoke you know, closure script, crazy, you know, thing. And the timeline comes, the deadline comes up and it's like the week before and he's panicking. And so then he outsourced it to me who I just (laughs) made like a WordPress website. (laughs) And uh, I just had a lot, I had a lot of fun with it and I was looking for a real career. And I think what the, the light that turned in my brain was like a lot of people, I kind of incorrectly assumed lumped programming in with math you know, five plus five is 10. That's it. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's the answer that no, there's no wiggle room. And I was always, you know, really into things like English and writing and expression and art and creativity and things that were kind of more abstract. And once I realized that writing software and writing code is more like writing an essay than it is like, like we call them algorithms, but it really is more like writing to me, like writing like an English essay where there, as long as you get to the point and you follow some, you know, a couple of rules, grammar rules, et cetera, you know, as long as you follow a couple of rules, you get to the point, it's still correct. And that really kind of opened my eyes. And so I started self-teaching while I was working at the microbrewery. After about a year of self-teaching and working, I stopped bartending and then focused on studying full-time. And my... I started, so WordPress, you know, I did the CSS, HTML, JavaScript kind of beginning everything. But then I actually went back, I call it scheme school and learned from SICP, Mm -hmm. kind of those like Lambda calculus functional paradigms in that way. And I did scheme on Dr. Racket for a while. And my partner that I was, I was dating at the time would give me word problems for me to solve in scheme. So write a function that takes these inputs and returns this output, make it look like this. And I would go and and write it in Scheme. And after a couple months of that, then Eric Norman, Purely Functional TV, I did, you know, the cooking with Normie or cooking with closure. And then I did his reframe component, you know, then I did the reframe courses. And then I went to the closure conj. And by then I had been studying for a couple of years and I met people and I did my jordan thing and here i am on the cognicast <laughs> so 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 you were you were you were working in scheme like I, I think a lot of us started there with sicp or or similar tangential things how did you end up finding eric norman's content with closure and was there something that drew you to that or you, were, you know you just google for lisp and trying to find something new or how'd that evolve well haskell isn't wasn't appropriate as far as functional. Like. <laughs> and I mean, probably the same reasons a lot of people find closure because it's it's actually has commercial applications. There are people mm-hmm. using it in real life situations. You can get hired because ultimately I was looking for a career. So yeah, that's really, and, and really learning scheme was, I, I wasn't learning scheme just, just to, I guess, not knowing where I was going with it, I was learning schemes so I could do better closure, so I could understand the fundamentals of functional programming. That's why I was doing it in the first place. All right. You made it up through closure and then you got your first job. Were you doing kind of back end type stuff or did you 
immediately gravitate towards the closure script world and more front endy type things or how'd that mm-hmm. work out for you? So it's funny because when I was learning, I really thought I was going to be back in. So I did also, when I was learning, I did all those closure course at Pure Functional. I was also doing this was, I was also doing Python because I was convinced. I was like, there's no way I'll actually be able to get hired in closure. I'll just write this. Like I figured my first job was going to be like a, like a super crappy Python job somewhere to just get me in the door and then I could do what I wanted. And so I was writing this godforsaken Python. I even have a blog. It's like unmaintained. I don't even know how to take it down, honestly. It's in like Jekyll, which is like tied in with Ruby. Like I'm gen locked out of all of that. <laughs> like, And I am advocating people write Python and do like, I think I'm advocating the use of like filter partial for normal use in Python, which is rude looking Mm -hmm. back a little bit. But anyway, okay, I I digress. (laughs) And so I was learning Python and Clojure, and I really thought I was going to be a back-end developer. I really really did. And I do think that there is this false notion that back-end developers are somehow smarter or better or more, I don't know whether it's more logical, but I I thought that's what I wanted to do. But I, I, I really did get joy after I did the initial closure, the cooking with closure. And, you know, I think a to do, write a to do list app. I did the reframe. It's like a huge reframe course. And I really just enjoy web development. We were talking about this at the beginning of the podcast about how I'm a huge proponent that, like, the environment that you're in, like, just for me personally, is so conducive to like productivity. And so I'm a very, I guess, appearance driven person and that sounds superficial but i guess i just i I am i like the joy it gives me when i look at something and it's and it's pretty and or it's it's satisfying you know and i draw from that and so closure script is a great a great fit for me because i can do what i know how to do with my prior background and you know i can do it functionally there are some rules and i can to quote Will Acton, and I've quoted him a couple times. His name is Lilac Town on, on Twitter, and and Defen and I did a podcast with him. But he said he likes making buttons that people can click, and then his heart—that's what he likes to do—and that just like resonates so heavy with me. Is I like making buttons that people can click, like just, but. But yeah, so I, I guess the question is what what drew. So I, I had learned both, though. I was I was trying to get any job at that point, any job I could get, anything I could break into the industry. And I gone to the closure conj and met some really great people that have really you know become really great friends and mentors and role models. And afterwards, I was applying to jobs on the closure Slack, and there was a company based out of Charlottesville that was hiring a closure script developer and I applied and I interviewed and I got the job and I moved to Charlottesville and it was a reframe app. And so that really kind of set the course of my professional development, but I'm glad that it did because it's doing what I love to do anyway. It just kind of worked out that way. You work with closure, you work with closure script, reframe. So when you're done working for the day, do you just keep developing, work on some hobby project, or do you have some other actual non-programming hobbies that you like to engage in? How's that work out for you? So, yeah, yeah. When I, well, the, all the content that I produce is something that takes a lot of time. 
I know it sounds ridiculous. Like making memes takes time, everybody, but it does. Oh, it's hard work. It's really hard work. Hard. It's hard work. You know, in the in the meme minds all day. You know. But a lot of it is also because, you know, I have my own podcast that I guess we will probably cross post to, but locking down guests for that and then getting the recordings and the post processing. And then I also have a YouTube channel where I release instructional content having to do with reactive data-driven closure script concepts. And and some, some of them, I try to keep it accessible. So some of my YouTube is just like how to become a programmer because at this point I get so many Facebook, Instagram, just people from high school like, I want to become a programmer. How do I do it? And I just, the first step is like, I'm happy to help anybody, but like it's, it becomes a time suck to try and help every single person ever. I'm also actually speaking of which I recently got involved with a really awesome organization. I'm excited to work with their name is Emergent Works and I have become a mentor for them. And their mission is to help people that have been formerly incarcerated, help kind of I guess, rehabilitate themselves through learning technology, whether that's like basic tech literacy, whether that's, you know, most of the time it's building skills to to get a job and get employed. And a lot of that does focus on communities that have traditionally been wrongly incarcerated for these things and um, disenfranchised communities, people of color. And it's just a mission that I feel really strongly about. And so I got involved in that is something that I'm doing now is, you know, helping my mentee learn skills and you just become, you help them with some HTML, CSS, tech literacy, all of that. It's a 12 week program, help them get a job. So that's something that I'm excited about being involved in. When I am not injured, which I am right now, but my other big hobby is aerial performance. Well, all all types of performance art. So for many years, I was a fire performer at music festivals, fire hooping. And then most recently, last few years, I have transitioned to aerial performing. So Lyra is an aerial hoop that is suspended from the air. And you do, it's kind of related to like trapeze. Silks are two pieces of fabric hung, again, suspended from the ceiling. You do aerial gymnastics dance all of that stuff. Pole fitness is another thing I'm passionate about and love to do, but I am currently recovering from surgery, so I'm not doing a lot of that right now. That's that's probably my favorite form of just like release self-expression is this aerial. I also do weight training just to keep my body fit. So how did you get into the aerial things? Did you do like any sort of like circus arts program or you find someone who was into it and you're like, yeah, I want to do that thing. Well, it was it was kind of a natural progression. I had done pole for a self-taught pole for a number of years. And as I said, I was a, a fire performer at music festivals. And so, you know, when you're in that scene, it is very focused on like circus arts. I kind of, I guess, plateaued with the fire spinning where I I got to the point I wasn't willing to spend the time that it would take per week to, to go to the next level, which is fair in any skill. And I, fire spinning can be very, or hula hooping in general can be very performative driven in that it's how you look. And I love, I love the feeling that the real dancing makes, makes you feel. I love feeling my body. I love sensual movement. I love, you know, balance and, 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 and things like that. And so doing aerial was really kind of the next logical step for me. And at the time I was living in Pennsylvania and I found an excellent studio that I wish 
It's one of the only bummer things about having moved to Charlottesville is I haven't. The studio is just like, I was spoiled. I was spoiled by the studio. It's so good. Studio Spin in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, if anybody's interested. And it was just a great community, great people. And yeah, I took classes. Lyra is probably my apparatus of choice. After moving to Charlottesville, I have been taking I had been taking private lessons on silks just because I found a really great teacher here that does that. And then I, I have a pole in my house just because it's the safest apparatus to have rigged. There's a lot of rigging safety precautions that you have to take. And a pole is just because it's grounded and attached at both. It's just the easiest thing, safest thing to to rig at your house. But but yeah, I guess that uh I think that answers you. Oh, I'm also into like indo boarding, if anybody knows what that is. The balance board where it looks like a yoga wheel and then it's like a like a boogie board on top of a yoga wheel and you balance on it and i like doing double hoops on the indo board it's kind of cool too i guess i don't know so i've talked to a lot of closure developers in general and i've you know non-closure developers and i've noticed there seems to be a strong preference for visual arts and musical arts much more so than other programming communities number one why would you think that is? And number two, do you feel like that that comes back into your development life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. And I do have views and thoughts on this, as a matter of fact. So I have I have seen my my previous partner. I, I I mentioned them them earlier. We were together for a few years, and I watched him try to spread the gospel and teach other people programming. Like it stuck with me. It's like, oh, why not? You know, and and I've even tried. And there does seem to be, I don't know where the line is, but there is a line where some people understand and can grasp like abstraction and some people cannot. And there are people that, you know, we've thought would totally take to it or, you know, they're awesome. They're smart. They're hardworking. They really know, you know, we've seen them excel in other areas. Of course, they would excel at programming or excel at programming closure. And, you know, after like a year or two of like beating our heads against the wall, like trying to go over the concept of like what a function is, like for the 50th time, you know, they have found that they actually really like SQL and we'll just do do SQL now. and. I think that that is an important distinction that like SQL is very concrete. It is very, there's nothing abstract about it. And to be able to really grasp um, some of these functional languages, you really need to be able to embrace abstraction, which I think comes from somebody who I'll tiptoe around the word intelligence, somebody that's like intelligent enough to grasp creative concepts. Because it is like a, I guess, a higher level of, of I don't want to say higher because I, I, and I, I don't like these, these words. When I say intelligence, I mean IQ test, which does not capture all of somebody's knowledge or value as a person at all, but does measure somebody's ability to solve problems by thinking outside the box. That is what I refer to when I say intelligence. But yeah, cer- certain people can can solve problems in an abstract way and, and certain people aren't as good at that. And the people that are able to be creative are also going to find happiness in creative endeavors such as music and art. And yeah, so that's that's my that's my hypothesis. There was that was a two-part question. What was the second part? Well, before I go with the second part, I'm I'm gonna say what my own opinion is and wonder because I wonder what you think. Because I feel like visual arts and music and other 
types of artistic expression tend to have a necessity for the person to explore and figure things out on their own because there's no right answer. There's no way to do it. And I've always felt like anything with REPL-driven development or a need to explore taps into that more so than, like you said, just writing SQL queries all day. What what do you think about that dimension of it? Well, I think it ties into what I said attracted me to programming in the first place when I said that, like, wait, it's not just like a dry like SQL. Like I, my, my thought of all programming was like SQL queries, you know, it's and it's like, wait, no, I get to be creative and yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you that it it has to do with like getting fulfillment from engaging in the pro engaging in the journey of finding what might not be ever a right answer. Right. <laughs> you know, the masochism too. I think a masochism totally ties into it. Because <laughs> there's no right answer. You can never be done, right? There's always right. like a better better thing. So I think all of us are a little, little bit masochistic. Yeah. Yeah. So the second part of the question was, is how do you think that artistic bent factors back into your development work from a more philosophical standpoint rather than something concrete? Hmm. Like, have you just been fire spinning and then, you know, like, Hey, Oh, actually there's this thing that I was doing when I was failing, I was trying to learn something new. Oh, I just, I, you know, that applies to this project that I'm working on as well. Do you get that flow back and forth between those mindsets? Well, I do. I do notice a a correlation in flow state. And it's funny, it's less so with like fire spinning. It's like I said, very performative, very like, okay, there are rules. I'm doing this. It's for an event. People are watching and like, you don't really get as much into flow versus when you're just not alone, but when you're just like at a music festival, which is like a normal hula hoop. And just dancing and just, or, or, you know, a lot of people would be, if it's not a music festival, I guess, um, at like a, a club or a show or like your favorite musician and you're just dancing and you're just feeling and time doesn't exist anymore. And everything just feels so natural and good. And, you know, I think a lot of people identify that code flow state when you're really just like in the mix, like you got your like lo-fi chill hot beats study and relax too in the background you got like your emacs open you got your notifications snoozed and it's like late or you know a lot of us like to you know get up super early or su- or code super late that way you don't have the distraction of, of everything and yeah that I, I noticed that 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 flow state is kind of very it's a very similar i guess part of my brain that i feel that is being kind of activated by so you're mentioning flow state with the the software development, which is, I know, is something that everybody, that's that's their goal. Like when you can get into that world, it's, I had a good day. No matter what happened, that was a good day. So if you had to get to that state, like what would you want to do? What, what would your surroundings be? How would you set up? How would you approach that? Like for optimal chance of reaching that state of flow. Well, it's interesting because that's another thing that, you know, kind of creativity, I guess, the things that I think the normal population wouldn't necessarily notice, but things like your IDE, we all know this. these are like very highly personal things that, you know, we all have. And whether you like person, you know, everybody personalizes their environment to try and set them up for this flow state, whether it's kept like for myself, as you mentioned, like my office is like my 
flow state, safe space. You know, I like all the nice warm lighting. I like my, my cat. I like to like light a candle and I'm really into a color coordination. So I don't use Space Max, but I use a Space Max theme because those colors are awesome. And I have custom designed my own keyboard where each key I, I picked the icon for it. It's like WASD keyboards. And I guess they 3D print each key. You know, it, you, you, you could basically send them a Inkscape file. And my keyboard exactly matches my Emacs config, which exactly matches my colors in the room, which exactly matches my hair and makeup on most days. <laughs> and I just get such a sense of joy from that. I, I totally identify with this. I have my pink Emacs theme. I got my pink keyboard. I got my pink glasses. I got my pink everything in front of me with pink stickers on my monitor. That's my happy place. The colors yeah. matter. The colors matter for some of us. Here, you know, the colors matter. Oh, and I've even I've like I redesigned the Linux Mint logo, but like in the colors of that matches. You know, it's kind of like a like a pink, pink and purple. And pink and purple are the best colors. I mean, objectively. I Pink and purple, the royalty. Yes, absolutely. And oh, a good chair is good. You know, I got the standing desk. Which chair do you use that you like? You know, so, what, did you know the name of it? Yes, actually, I I just I I just got this like last week. I found it on eBay for a really good price, and I had previously had a Herman Miller Aeron, which mm-hmm. I sold to my ex when I moved because when I was moving, I was moving to work in an office like on site, so I didn't have it used for my home chair, my home, like work from home remote chair. And it was really heavy and I didn't feel like moving it. So I, I sold it, but then COVID happened. So I um, had a bunch of crappy chairs, but I just got the steel case leap and uh, 10 out of 10. Love it. Got it recently. eBay, good price. I like the steel case leap better than the air on for me anyway. I've heard a lot of great things about that. You said you have a standing desk. Do you have a mat that you like to stand on or any things to aid with your standing experience? Well, see, I'm just like everybody else with the sitting standing experience. Because the whole thing with a standing desk is you're not supposed to pick one to do it. The whole thing is you're supposed to like stand for 30 minutes, sit for 30, you know, you're supposed to go back and forth. And that's the advantage of the standing desk. But I found when I used a mat, I try to, because I know I'm supposed to be going up and down and, and standing, but then that interrupts the flow. I try to do as many things to like not make that hard as possible. So I have had standing mats, balance boards, like you name it, I've had it. But like, it's just too much a pain in the butt to like move my chair, get the standing mat, do everything again. Yeah, it's just, no. Nah. So now I just wear like, I always wear Adidas like slip-ons or slippers mm-hmm. in the house anyway which is like the same material as the comfy standing mat. So it's... Oh, that sounds like the way to go. I slide yeah. my standing mat back and forth and I hate it. So I yeah. never thought of actually having the standing mat attached to my feet. That kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what, that's what I, I remember I was standing on my standing mat when my Adidas slides, like, you know, the pool slides. Like, I'm from Costco too. I, I'm like, I looked down. I was like, huh, well, this seems a little bit redundant. Mm-hmm. So I assume you work remotely. For for most most of your uh, time working as a professional developer, is that true? Yes. yes. So, how do you deal with uh, being surrounded by your your general life? Like, I know a lot of people with the COVID, they had trouble switching to a remote life. 
Do you have any things that you do that make that easier for you? Or is that something that you struggle with sometimes? It is not something I personally struggle with. Well, I mean, to be wrong to say, I didn't struggle with it at all. So it's funny, in my, on my podcast, I had Kira on last week, and we spoke a little bit about this, and that I recently did a bit of traveling, where I uh, traveled through California for like a month and a half, and then went to Strange Loop, and I was working remotely, but like trying to do it like digital nomad, you know, kind of like laptop, backpack, you know, I and... What I found is I overpacked so bad because like I couldn't just have the laptop because I, I was borrowing a um, co-worker's Mac and I don't like the Mac keyboard. So I had to bring my own keyboard. So then I had to bring a lap desk. So then I had to bring, and it was just like all these things I felt like I needed. <laughs> but I was able to be like more focused because I would wake up, you know, I live East Coast, so I was on East Coast time and I kind of kept that where I would wake up super early and I'd work in my hotel room or wherever I was from like 6 a.m. to like 12 p.m. when hotel checkout was. And there was like no reason to leave. Like I would just sit and be able to get focused. But I, you know, there were there were trade-offs of I didn't have a bigger monitor. I didn't have other things, but I guess you could say I was more focused versus at home. You know, I have all of my comfy items. I have my big old monitor and standing desk and, and all that. But as you said, you know, it's easy to just like look at your phone and be like, hmm. but as far as keeping, I, I think I also have the, the privilege of, you know, I, I don't have kids. I don't have a lot of home distractions or demands. And I live in a pretty big place. I always look for a place, you know, that has like a separate bedroom, like a two bedroom, like a bedroom for bedroom and a bedroom as an office that's totally separate. Like the only thing I do in that room is work. And I, I follow a routine where like I wake up and I'm super into like self-care as far as I wake up and do my hair and do my makeup every day just because I enjoy it for myself. It's kind of like, I like, like I like putting on makeup because it's like kind of artistic and creative. And it's like, sounds really weird. Like almost like a, it's like a good habit to start the day with like look at you you bad bitch like you're beautiful oh yeah like it's a nice and I listen I listen to NPR while I put on my makeup and it's it's like a nice routine I like it and uh, even if I'm not gonna see anybody that day because I usually don't see anybody but that's how I stay like I'm going to work now as I follow that routine I go into my office and I close my door and you know I don't have kids being like where's my something something I need help with my homework. I need help. You know, I don't have that. So I think it was a little easier for me to, to work from home than, than others. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you got there that you're uh, drinking? Because <laughs> we're doing me? this podcast and we have, we have the video set up. So I, I can see she has like this, this little squeezy thing that just, that just popped up. It is a uh, it is a happy tot organic super bellies immune and digestive support blend of organic bananas spinach and blueberries. It's it's a pouch of <laughs> it's a snack. <laughs> it's, it's, so is this is this something that you're 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 consuming because it tastes good or because it's supposedly good for you? you know, a lot of the time those things don't overlap. Yes, I'm not consuming the thing that I, I do have something. I'm a big proponent of like every day I do a greens and collagen mix, like a smoothie that I use athletic greens. I think they're really great. And then like a, a collagen 
high, you know, the collagen mix. And that's like my health drink that doesn't taste that great, but like it's good for me. So I drink it. But this is, well, I found with this surgery I recently got on my hip, everything is just such a pain in the ass. I didn't realize like what a baby I was in that like, got to go to the bathroom and then I'm thirsty and then I'm hungry and then I got to go to the bathroom again. And then when you're on, I'm on crutches right now and it wouldn't be so like lo- like loss of using my leg. Like that's not, you know, whatever I can sit, but it's like not being able to use my hands because I'm supposed to be on crutches because I'm not allowed to put any weight on my leg. That's like the big, big deal. So I was, I, there a couple of days went by that I realized I was like under eating just because eating was such a pain in the butt to do. I wasn't doing it. And so I'm a big fan. I usually don't because they're not super environmentally friendly, but I do really like baby food, like the baby food pouches, which is what this is. So it's not horrible for me. It's like a hundred calories and it has the carbs and sugars and crap, I guess I need to recover. And I don't know, it's just something. So my, cause I was finding like, I was getting to the end of the day and I was like tired and grumpy and I'm like, like, why? And it's like, oh, because I forgot to eat. And these are room stable, so I can just keep a bunch of them next to my next to my desk and then I just kind of try to you sip need, them. You need a little secretly. mini fridge with us with, with them in there, huh? Yeah. Honestly, I like I like things room temperature. Like I like mm. I like water, no ice. Crazy, I know. Yeah, I'm always the weird I order water, no ice when I go to the restaurant. And now now the places that I go more than like once a month, I'm known as the water no ice guy. So because it's so <laughs> weird in Florida. To, to not want ice in anything you drink. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and oh, well, oh God, try going to Florida and ordering unsweet tea and like try that out because that's no fun. That's what I do. It's, it's hard, uh, isn't it? Yeah, and, it's, I want unsweet tea and I don't want ice in it. And some places are like, I don't even know how to do that. Yeah, <laughs> look at you. What? You mean, like we only got one tea, sweet tea, right? No, no, unsweet tea. <laughs> what? I don't think we have, I've, I've had people like, mm, we don't have that. Well, it makes sense, I guess. But Yeah, that's, that's definitely a Southern thing for sure. So <clears throat> when you were talking about you, you did the digital nomad thing for a while and you felt like you could get more focus compared to being at home, you know, sometimes in your, your office space, you know, you pick up your phone, you get, you get on Twitter and, you know, two hours disappear or whatever. Do you feel like that product, I mean, that focus actually translates to productivity where like in your office, maybe you feel more comfortable and you have time to let your ideas work through your brain when you're scrolling through Twitter or whatever. How do you think the product, the productivity works between the focus and the my space that I like and I enjoy and I do what I want? I think that, you know, it's, it's trade-offs because I'm obviously going to be more productive in when like my Emacs key bindings work all the way because like I was having a problem with like my keyboard not mapping to my where like on the Mac I was using, like my key binding for like slurping and barfing didn't work. So I'd have to do like, like I'd have to like alt X pair edit slurp forward or something, which is just an extra step. But, and I, I'm sure I could have figured it out, but I never, I guess it, it was a short time and I troubleshooted it for like a day or I lost like a day or two. I'm like, you know what, screw it, whatever. But it's interesting because it's something I've been learning more about. I I have ADHD and something I've, I guess I've been learning more about that and kind of how it, you know, all of, all of these things throughout my life. It's like, oh my gosh, that 
makes sense because when you you know you get the diagnosis and it's just like you're like oh you can't focus but it's like so much more than that and I have the they used to have ADHD and ADD and they have now changed it to ADHD type one and two but I have what a lot of women have is the you know it was known as ADD attention deficit so for me it's not necessarily tapping and jumping off the walls it's it's like in in my head rereading the same thing eight times you know stuff stuff like that and. I guess how this relates uh, in perfect ADHD fashion, this answer to the question (laughs) is that I didn't know this until recently, but people that have this perform way better under pressure than they do not under pressure. And so I'm like, oh, that makes total sense to why I've always like procrastinated everything done it the night or two before and like blown it out of the water and done amazing (laughs) my entire life. Like that's kind of the pattern that I... I'm like, oh, well, that make that makes sense. <laughs> so I think that when I was digital nomad thing, there was like that added pressure. Even though I didn't have all my tools, I did have the, to me, it's a weird advantage of like, I'm getting kicked out of this hotel room at 12 p.m. There was like that additional anxiety. And so I think that how it translates to productivity, I don't know, how do you even measure productivity as a as a programmer is it is it tickets closed is it time spent staring at a screen is it time spent in a flow state like if anybody can answer that for it like like to know but I, you know I don't I don't know that it's even fair to ask how do I feel like it my productivity because I don't even know how to measure that well it's clearly lines of code right so. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so if you if you don't feel like you could say the productivity output how, how do you feel about the experience then? Like being, you know, like I'm super focused, you know, I'm under pressure. Hotel checkout is at noon. I got to get this done compared to I'm in my, my office at home. Everything's the way I like it. I can do what I want. Preference is I prefer at home. I do want to in the future try and see if I can explore, you know, maybe taking like a month or two each year. And working from the road, maybe when things are like not super, you know, maybe on uh, when deadline, you know, it's uh, not focus isn't on all on me because you know how there's cycles of of things are high stress at work and things aren't. But I do prefer my own environment because like by the time I got home in California and I stayed, I have some uh, a really awesome aunt in uh, Napa Valley. And so I stayed there. And she also has another place in Carmel. And so then I was there and then I rented a car and I drove from Carmel down to San Diego, kind of stopping wherever I wanted along the way. And it was really fun. It was really great. And then from there, I went to Strange, straight to Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri. So by the time I got home, I had been not home. I had been away from my cat for like a month and a half, like a month, month and a half. And I was just kissing the hardwood of, of my like yes oh you know my bed my my things my my diffuser my my cat <laughs> you mentioned earlier about your keyboard with your custom keycaps you use a wasp keyboard wasd that- well yeah that was the first keyboard when i got into mechanical keyboards that it was a wa- wasd wasd keyboard wasd how are they pronouncing it <laughs> yeah yeah whatever yeah so that was i think 86 10 keyless and they really allow like for the customization and those were clear switches 
And like I said, each keycap, I don't know what material they are, but like each keycap, I mean, I, I literally used Inkscape to design each one. And I guess they use 3D printing. I recently got this other Keychron, a Keychron K3. And this one has brown switches and some of the, a lot of the keycaps kind of fit. So I kind of swapped them out. But this is what I really like about this one. And this is why I got it is that it has two switches. One of them is for Bluetooth and cable. And so um, in my personal environment right now, I have one extra wide monitor that has the ability for two inputs. One of those inputs, I have the Apple Mac that my coworker had lent me for travel. And on the other input, I have my Linux machine that I have, you know, kind of, I call it my beast. And it's really nice to be able to just go onto the monitor and switch if I want to, if I need to do something that's Mac oriented, testing, test on Safari, you know, whatever, especially because I'm a web developer. So to test different, you know, browsers, it's nice to be able to go and change the input on the monitor and then change the input on the keyboard. And it just seamlessly switches. So that's, that's what I'm rocking right now. Although I, I kind of, I recently fell in love with at least the aesthetics of low free keyboards. They kind of are doing like Know, mixing like mechanical keyboards and tech and like and like beauty stuff they seem pretty cool i don't know i'm a keyboard trying to be not like i guess i'm a keyboard nerd trying to be a keyboard nerd like not as keyboard nerd as it's kind of like emacs like i use it it's my favorite ide i'm not like a power user of it like i like mechanical keyboards i'm not a, a power mechanical <laughs> keyboard nerd it's just i like it you know <clears throat> So you use Linux for your day-to-day -day work primarily? I do. Yeah. Linux, Linux Mint is my preferred environment. How, how, did, how did you get into that? Because I know most developers in the closure world tend to use Macs primarily. Well, see, what had happened was when I, when I initially learned, I initially learned on like a borrowed, I did like scheme school on like a borrowed ThinkPad that like somebody's like my ex-partner's like job had lent them. So it wasn't like my computer. And then I actually didn't have a computer for a long time. I had like a Chromebook and I had a Pixel book, which I kind of like it did with Python, just unholy use of a Pixel book. I was broke because I was learning programming. It was only like $800, but it came with like a quote Linux subsystem just came with a little penguin virtual box on it, but it came with some like horrible bugs. Like sometimes it would just like forget what pseudo meant, which is an unacceptable bug. <laughs> and I'd have to like delete the subsystem and like re, re get it. But when I got my first big girl job, they gave me a Mac and it was hard for me to learn the first time I ever had one, but I, I went through and I learned and, and I was on that for a little bit. But then I, when I didn't work for them anymore, they, took it back and that hurt, you know, it was pretty crippling to be a developer and not have a machine to develop on. And, you know, it didn't end with that company in like the super best way. And so it was just, it was pretty, it was pretty, it was a pretty crappy feeling that somebody could take that away from me. So then I, you know, when I was able to, you know, get another job and get employed and save up some money, I built my own computer that way. Nobody could ever, ever take that away from me again. And, and yeah, I guess fuck windows. Need I say more? Like I built my machine. I could have 
Well, like nobody's going to disagree with that. So, I mean, yeah. 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 Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> why Linux? It's like, well, I didn't have money. I built it myself. And, and when I built this, uh, my intention was actually to build a Hackintosh. But around that time, Apple ha- uh, released that they were going to do the M1s. And I was like, well, so I'm going to like build a machine that will shortly be deprecated. I'm going to go through all this trouble when like, because I, I got the Intel chip and I thought, and you know, the Hackintosh was actually feasible. But then I realized that like slowly but surely it would be like a time limit on when that wouldn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and dude, Linux Mint is like super user friendly. Like I'm super on board and I love it. And, and I have gone into some um, free software, open source philosophy rabbit holes that I also stand for the mission too. now that I know more about it. Yeah. Plus, it's cool. Now I'm, just, I'm cool. Like Emacs and, and Linux street cred. Yeah, come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everybody thinks you're like 30 years older than you really are as soon as you mention those things, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. was back in engineer in 1977. <laughs> Got the first <laughs> version of Emacs. I've been using that since, you know, 80, 88 or whatever. Well, actually, when I, so I have, I guess it would be, it was like a friend slash like small mentor for a short time was on the team that helped write the first Emacs. And he's super great. His name is Mike. My friend Paula connected us. And uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, (laughs) you joke about that. But yeah, that was, that was somebody I knew. (laughs) We're running close to the end of our time. Is there anything that you felt like you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover so far? Something that you've been excited about recently that you've been working on? Again, I should have these answers prepared, but but I don't. I guess I'd like to thank you and then also thank the community for embracing me as much as they have because I I love I love being able to do what I do and have fun and being able to like contribute to the community in ways that I do that aren't as traditional because a lot of people find ways to contribute to the community through open source work or tool or a framework or something like that. And I just feel so happy and lucky and motivated to be able to contribute to the community and have the community be receptive to that contribution in like these outside the box ways, such as like, like, like memes and podcasts and interviews and, and, you know, and I'm just, I'm, I'm super grateful for that. So that's, I guess, I guess that's, that's, that's a bit. So where can people find you on the internet? Your podcast, Lambda, Twitter? I have, hopefully, I will send you my link tree to put into the show notes. And that will have, uh, yeah, the podcast is Lost in Lambdas. My YouTube channel, oh, okay, one more bit. (laughs) (laughs) I made my YouTube account when I was in high school for a project. My last name is Miller. For some reason at the time, I thought it was cool to make my my YouTube name is Miller Light 2777, but like L-I-G-H-T, so like not even spelled correctly. <laughs> and YouTube doesn't let you change it unless you get more than 500 subscribers, and I only have like two to 300, so my YouTube would be found under Lambda, but I made it so long and I don't have that many subscribers. So if you want to do me a favor and go to my and follow the link tree and go to my YouTube and subscribe, if only so I can switch that <laughs> stupid name from like 20 years ago, please. Because I have like family members ask me, you're like, what's your YouTube? I'm like, oh, I'm doing things professional, blah, blah, blah. And they're 
like, oh, what's your YouTube? And I always try to hide my YouTube link by like making people go through my link tree to click the button. That way they don't have to type in Miller Lite 2777. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, my link tree will have all of all of my places. And Twitter at Lambda. There's like two or three H's. Two or three, you're not sure? I don't know. Well, some places I have two because they allowed it. And then some places somebody had been, somebody had snagged it. So like all of my places is like lamb, duh. But like anywhere, actually like two to four H's is like, it's like whatever. I, I think on, yeah, some platforms I got up to five and I'm like, okay, that's, that's too much. Yeah. Five's pushing it for sure. Five's pushing it. Yeah. But yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, I appreciate the time. This has been wonderful chatting with you. I guess again has been Jordan Miller. Thank you very much. Bye. Our host this week was Robert Randolph, who is at Admiral B on Twitter. Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio. The Cognicast is produced by Jarrett Benford and Robert Randolph. The intro music is Crazy G, played by Russ Olson. The outro music is by Nazca at nazcamusic.com. I'm Jarrett Benford. Please stay safe and healthy out there, and thanks for listening to The Cognicast. Cognicast.